Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate your taking your time to spend with us. We know how precious it is, and so we're very, re- we're very aware of the gift that you give us when you do listen. Uh, I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife have an amazing website there, and it helps to show how the First Nation people kept their their children aware of their history and their cosmology, their the way that they revered the earth and, and the and the spirits around us. And it's a profound way and a better way, I think, of preserving history than we do today because it grew with their culture as opposed to being stagnant in time. Mark has a great show for you tonight. I'm looking forward very much to the two gentlemen that he has with him. I think it's going to be a very exciting show. I keep paper and pencil ready. You may want to take some notes. I know I've got mine all set. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here and bringing your great guests with you. Well, thanks for having us on, allowing us to return after a few mistakes here and there. But uh, we (laughs) we keep moving uh, forward despite our blunders. Yeah, how, yes, how's did. your week going? So far, so good. Yeah. How about you? Uh, that's all right. Just get, um, might as well get get started here. It's just uh, almost running late. Uh, since we're doing punk uh, archaeology tonight, I had to run down to the courthouse and change my name to Mark Rotten. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I think I buy my vegetable from him, Mark. You might want to think of another last name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. You can tell. Uh, th- th- yeah. This. Uh, we were like two minutes into the show, and it's already out of control. It's who knows where this one's going. <laughs> but if uh, a handbasket, I think. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, two buddies are uh, with us for the next uh, 
maybe a couple hours and could be cut short if you hear the black helicopters and battering rams and sirens. But, um, you know, uh, Dave Sheldon and Rob Whitworth are uh, here. You know, we've challenged the traditional interpretations of archaeological sites. And Dave and Rob are uh, documentary filmmakers focusing on hidden and unique aspects of history. They've traveled extensively uh, for this project and have interviewed uh, several of uh, the uh, people who have been guests on Nightlight. Um, Their website is roadtoruins.com. That's road, the number two. Uh, ruins.com and you can check out their informative videos and numerous uh, photos hopefully after the show you want to hear all all their information and our show a couple weeks ago covered ancient canals of South America and uh, I think Jones information laid the foundations for this Central and South American uh, theme we're developing. Uh, we'll probably uh, be able to weave some strands from uh, that ancient canal show to this one. And Dave and Rob are going to lay the foundations for uh, another South American show. We will be doing on Friday, December twenty seventh. So uh, that one's going to be a really neat one too. So you know, so we have this little South American Mesoamerican uh, theme developing. So uh, welcome, Rob and Dave. How, how are you? Excellent. We're great. We're glad to be back. Okay. So. Um, the, Dave, what do you mean by punk archaeology? That's you know right right there on your website. Uh, what do you yeah uh, what are you conveying by using that term? Hopefully, a, a sense of fun at the same time, a sense of you know get out and, and look in your own backyard. I mean, we talk about, uh, you know, neither of us is formally educated in archaeology or anthropology, nor do we claim to be, nor would we ever represent ourselves that way. I, uh, I just thought it was kind of a fun take on, on, on words, and, you know, we both kind of grew up through the punk scene. We're fans of, you know, punk rock, and it just kind of fit because punk is DIY. Do it yourself. Get out. Go, don't, you know, sit behind the TV 10 hours a day, get off your butt, go outside and go look. You'll never know what you'll find. And um, I know it's a little bit off track, but along those lines recently out here where I live in the woods, uh, I live in a site. Um, I, I didn't even know there were petroglyphs here when I moved out here. I just knew that I belonged out here. And I just I, I looked at several sites out here. I'm 45 minutes from pavement. I'm totally off grid. And I kept looking at this ridge, kept looking at this ridge. I saw a few things that were highly uh, unusual as well in the sky around this ridge uh, without going into extreme detail, one being, you know, a thunderbird. The other, uh, a Hopi elder conveyed to me was a healing kachina. 
And it inspired me to go hike this ridge. And I got to the top and I found two stone rings. And I sent my Hopi elder friend the photos. And he confirmed that that is an ancient healing site. And I know this was populated by the Hasatinam ancestors of the Hopi because that's the nature of the petroglyphs um, that exist no more than eh, three or four miles from me on the, on the, the way here, right off the roadside. So and, and I, I walk out of my backyard and I find arrowheads, pottery. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, if I had more time, I'd be doing that all the time, <laughs> walking around staring at the ground, which isn't hard during the summer because we have rattlesnakes. But uh, Ew. It's, uh, it's just, you know, if anything, to me, it's an example of, you know, what's out there. And I, I went, actually went up there with a, an electro, a magnetometer, actually, to measure the electromagnetism. And I know that you're familiar with Burke and Hallberg's, you know, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty mm-hmm. uh, from 2006. Well, uh, Rob and I picked up a magnetometer to take to the UK and go measure the ancient sites over there. I still had the thing kicking around. So I figured, well, what the heck? Let's go see. The topography makes sense. There might be some action up there. And I measured uh, 496 milligauss around these circles um, in eh, probably 8, 9 a.m. in the day. So sunrising, morning, it's going to be more active. But that was a full almost 100 milligauss higher than the readings we got at West Kent Long Barrow. And uh, supposedly anything over 300 causes, quote, adverse physiological effects in the human body. So you never know what you're going to find. Be a punk. You know, don't you don't have to follow the rules. Go go look. Go see what you find. You you never know what's going to be out there. Okay, so get uh, get get out and explore, and just don't uh, sit sit in the classroom and take the, well, the authorities uh, you know, what what they have to well, say. Okay, to a certain extent, I mean, those folks are highly educated. And uh, I don't mean to disparage them at all. I mean, what they do is very important. And they're really good at digging into the ground and telling you what these people ate 5,000 years ago. And that is important. They're putting together the story. But I've always advocated, and I I think Rob would back me up, that you need a full approach. I mean, you need a multidisciplinary approach to all these ancient sites in order to fully understand what's going on. You don't see archaeologists out there with magnetometers, you know, maybe LIDAR. But, you know, you need to to use different tools and see with different eyes and open your mind bigger than the textbook. And I think that's a problem that we have in in our educational system is that, you know, oral tradition, by the way, I love the plug you gave at the beginning for oral tradition. That is definitely the way knowledge gets handed down. Mm -hmm. Anybody knows anything about – yeah, I wanted to tell Barbara Thank you. It it was. Thank you, Barbara. And and anyone who knows anything about oral tradition knows that – I mean, you take the word of an elder is the word. That's what is. I, I would take the right. word of any elder over a textbook. Some guy sitting in an office, you know, who has, uh, you know, maybe an editor looking over what he's doing, but can write with whatever bias he wants or she wants. That to me is not. That's not education. That's just carrying over bias generation to generation, and and then look where we've gotten now. I mean, yes, you, could, you, 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 you can actively watch our history being destroyed right now. So the next generation won't know how we screwed up. 
You know, and we look back at all these failed civilizations and we do know how they screwed up and we're still doing the same thing. Okay, so it's, uh, uh, you're taking more of an indoctrination approach by, by the establishment. Well, more or less. I mean, if you're an academic, you need to publish or perish. You know, if you want to get money to go do your research project, you've got to base it on what was done before you. You can't really go outside the box and get paid to do it. You just can't. You know, uh, and academics are, are tight, you know, and then you've got the independent researchers, and a lot of them are really tight with their research. In a perfect world, everybody would just throw everything out on the table and try to figure it out. But, you know, there's too many special interests out there, and that's really a shame. And, uh, you know, I think Rob and I, it's one of the things that we try to take out of everything we do is that we just, we're unbiased. We don't know. And we're the first ones to admit we don't know. We don't know. The only thing I know for sure is that I don't know anything. <laughs> but, but I tell you, I've seen some things, and uh, I've seen some things that don't make any sense at all uh, with the paradigm that we've got running right now. Just don't make any sense at all. Okay, so, so okay, so yeah, I I don't know might be a good segue into ha- having Rob explain the premise of your video series. Well, the premise of the video series is actually explained in the first 30 seconds. Dave wrote this great intro that essentially revolved around tracing the tracks of our ancestors to learn from our past before it's too late, which is exactly what we've been trying to do. Pay attention to those that came before you, that potentially committed errors, who learned, and are now willing to share that information. Unfortunately, again, this is not academic information. It requires being in the presence of someone who had that tradition probably handed down orally, who's able to relate the history of their culture and what occurred with their peoples. Um, Before I move on to that too much, though, what I I wanted to touch on, because you'd asked Dave about the punk ethic, and it didn't get get pounded home hard enough that it needs to be a multidisciplinary endeavor on the parts of the academics and the colleges. Um, I have a library card. I'm quite proud of it. I spend a lot of time at the local library, and I've come to know a nice lady there. She and her husband were academic researchers, Chaco Canyon, Southwest, and the 60s and 70s. I won't bother saying which college that they were employed by, but they made the mistake of walking across the hallway one day to, I think it was the biology department, and asking them, could you possibly do some research on these remains? And they were told that their career was basically over if they didn't get out of that college because you never walked across that hallway. And that's one thing we've got to learn. Everybody has to put their heads together to solve any kind of a problem, to figure out a solution to whatever endeavor it is we as a group of people need to get sorted out. And if it's just one group of people, the academics with an agenda, and just like Dave said, publish or perish, you've got to fill those seats, you've got to fill that classroom, you've got to do that next book tour. And that's not working for us. Along those those lines, Judge, I could add, you know, we had the opportunity to interview uh, a, a nice man, a nice family, a nice man. I, I won't get into details, but I've been wanting to air this for a long time because it really stuck in my craw. This guy's Harvard educated, and he leads the anthropology and archaeology departments for a major U.S. university. And he, on camera, in front of us, when we asked him about oral tradition, he likened it to the telephone game. That's not an Ew. educated man. And that's dangerous. That's frightening. 
This is what he's perpetuating into students, college-level students across the country who are getting into that field. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, and we also had, we also had the opportunity to interview, and it's acceptable in this instance to offer his name, Clifford Mahuti, who is an elder of mm-hmm. the Zuni tribe. And we were having a discussion, and I think most of it ended up on film, but we were talking at length about oral tradition and how you learn that that manner and, and you know your elders kind of nurture the youth. And he made it very clear to us that that was the manner in which he was raised. Um, he's an engineer of some type now, I believe, or he was professionally before he retired. But mm-hmm. he made it abundantly clear to us that the most important thing within the body of that process is you're not allowed to walk away until you can prove that you have memorized the information. It has to be yep. committed to memory. You have to prove that you can recollect it and then offer it on to somebody else that wants to learn the same thing. This isn't like a scratchy telephone call. This is sitting in front of your elder on your knees begging for information and being fed everything you need so that you can keep your culture alive. Yep. Okay. So a bit, a bit more than the telephone game. <laughs> no, and – Okay, how about we uh, get into your recent trip to Guatemala, and you know we can come back to uh, you know, uh, Four Corners uh, area and the very lengthy. Uh, traditions there, and you know, see if there's like some some kind of uh, uh, cultural connection. So, so uh, let's just put the Hopi material on hold for a little bit, and let's get into uh, both of you made a re- you know you just got back last week from uh, another trip to. Guatemala. What was the purpose of this trip? Joy. <laughs> I, quite simply, uh, Rob, uh, my dad passed away a year ago, um, and mm-hmm. he came up and helped me uh, deal with all my dad's estate. I was the executor, and it was a mess. And Rob came up and really helped me through a hard time. So we decided, you know, when this is all over, what are we going to go do to to celebrate and have fun? And the first thing on both of our minds was getting back to Guatemala. So that, that was the genesis of the trip. And then the next thing you know, it could have, or could have been a relaxing time. The initial intention was to head to Antigua, um, the old capital of Guatemala and just spend a week. And then I thought, you know, we're only a few hours away from, Honduras, we should go down and see Copan, and since we're going to do that, let's go uh-huh. to and the next thing you know, we hit five different ruins on that trip, and some of these places I had been to in the past about nine, ten years ago, and at least in one instance at a place called Pacalicabac, which is where the Maya very likely first encountered the Olmec and got their system of astronomy and mathematics passed on to them, um, there was a, a huge excavation going on conducted by a university at the time that they had like these eight-foot panels, like these um, oh, like uh, metallic roofing panels, like aluminum roofing panels up around the whole thing so you couldn't see in. They had tarps over the top so that even if somebody flew over from a plane, they couldn't get any photos. So I was intrigued to go back and see what it was exactly they had found. So the trip turned out to be more of a, 
yet another archaeological ruined site type of thing. And um, it, in this, what we're we're into. yeah, it's what we're into. And yeah, <laughs> what in this instance, what they had found um, that they didn't want anybody seeing as they excavated it out of uh, probably about 20 feet deep was an Olmec head. Very yep. similar to the ones found in Veracruz. Um, they're in Tabasco at the, the very bottom, the very southernmost part of the Gulf of Mexico. But, Pretty much the same thing. But very different, kind of uh, crude looking. Well, the ones that, I, if I'm not mistaken, the, yeah, well, the ones in Veracruz were basalt, and they were never buried. This, this was a softer stone, more of a sandstone, limestone type mm-hmm. thing, kind of like they used at Kirawan, Copan. So the stone is much mm-hmm. more... When it's exposed to the elements, even just weather, it washes away. And I'm, I'm guessing all those years in the ground didn't treat it well. So, right. uh, uh, Rob, okay, so we have the Olma culture, and that's a African culture making uh, – you know, Doing naval engineering to cross the Atlantic. They're arriving in Mesoamerica, uh, mingling with the Mayan people. Uh, okay, do do we have like a time frame? Then what was the? How, how did the culture change after you have two different types of people getting together? Well, first of all, there's no conclusive evidence that it did indeed come from Africa other than the appearance of these heads and of the artwork that they have left as representative of themselves and then the Maya then represented them as well. They not only have features of people who would have been from more recently Africa, but they also toned their skin in the same manner. So the Olmec were definitely in wherever it is they came from, whoever they were. Like we say, we don't know but we're going to keep trying to figure it out. But they were in Mesoamerica long before the Maya people ever presented themselves. So this particular location, which is only about 30 miles from the Pacific coast in Guatemala, is most likely the place where those two cultures met. Now, we know that the Maya were warfaring. They were feudal states. They fought against each other. That may have been more ceremonial, and we can get into that another time. It might not have been a genuine war, but it was more just just guys futzing around on the basketball court. They liked to fight. It's just what they did. It was ceremonial. Again, different discussion. Regardless, the Maya picked up um, astronomy, mathematics, and some different types of writing and hieroglyphs from the Olmec. And at this specific site, you see both of them represented right side by side. Um, as far as the timeline goes, that place was occupied I mean, we could go way back, but it was definitely occupied by the Olmec about 1200 BC, so well over 3,000 years ago. It was the pre-classic period of the Maya when the Maya started to move into that area. So we're talking maybe four to 600 BC. So they've been there. The Olmec had been there for about 800 years before the Maya ever encountered them. But continuous, verifiable occupation for 3,000 years at that site. Okay, an amazing site. It is an amazing site. And one thing that we figured out, I mean, it's cool to go to these sites and see what parts have been excavated, which is usually, as a rule, only a small fraction of what actually exists there. So we were heading out of the the park that afternoon, and we spotted this huge topographic map. I mean, this thing was, what, Dave, like 25 feet by like 12 feet? 
It was a big one, yes. It was a whopper, and it showed what the place would look like if it were indeed all excavated. And what we noticed in that moment is it's at a V between two rivers, just like the places in Veracruz and the other places that we know the Olmec occupied. They like to build between two rivers. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, kind of a uh, river question in, in, in a little uh, bit. It, it, you know, one of the places you've uh, visited that uh, you, you just uh, mentioned, but uh, yeah, I wanted to touch on that. It, it, it sounds, uh, you know, I've heard a little bit about it, was Copan and um, what did you, you learn about that site? There, there, there's uh, a famous altar there. Uh, what's the story behind that? Uh, Rob, you want to take that one? Yeah, the, well, Copan is in Honduras. And okay. Like many of these places, the names that they end up with is – much like what you were conversant with, with the Adena and the Hopewell. It's the guy that owns the farm Mm -hmm. that people finally go out and do the research on, and that's where the name comes from. The actual name of that town, which I can't recollect in the dialect of Maya there, which I think is Shorty or Chorty, the Chorty people still live up in the mountains. It quite literally means corner, kind of like Rinconada. Um, That is the southernmost corner of the Maya territory. And the thing that makes Copan really cool is there's a couple things that make it really cool. For one, in most instances, the Maya people built over other structures. This was not considered hiding them or concealing them. It was to protect them. So if I decide that I want to build a house because Mark Eddy used to live there, I leave your house, but I build it over the top because you're my friend and I want to take care of what it is that you did. Same mm-hmm. thing happened there to the tune of what you're presently seeing above ground level is the sixth creation. You got a tunnel way down, like I think it was like 90 feet down. They found a thing called the Rosalia Temple uh, that there's a recreation of in the museum there, which is outstanding and worth seeing. And it's one of the ways that these archaeologists, where we do really give them credit, were able to realize what kind of paints and pigments and what these buildings looked like when they were new because it's preserved perfectly inside five other pyramids above it. So that's pretty impressive. Um, I I think what you're referring to as far as the sculpture – goes there's a thing there called Alter Q. Um, I could do like four hours on it, but to break it down, the guy that started um, Copan, the Copan King Dynasty, Kanishak Akmo, in 432, um, of course, passed on, and he's buried down under those six pyramids. But the 16th leader um, decided that he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that he was in direct lineage of that king. Turned out to not be the greatest king the place ever had. As a matter of fact, he essentially buried it in the post-classic period. But he had this altar made that showed all 16 rulers within the middle of the part that you initially face when you encounter this thing. On the left-hand side, you have the guy that founded it. And on the right-hand side, grasping the serpent rod that's being passed to him as a symbol of power, is the 16th ruler. So the whole point of the thing was to simply, you know, it's propaganda. It's just like politics now. Yep. Make the people aware that I come from there. You know, that I'm actually receiving this flaming sword from, you know, the guy that started this place. And then he proceeded to bury it, and the place was pretty much abandoned by like 800 AD. Okay, so 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 basically nothing's changed with power structures. It's 
Well, as far as the Maya go, there's one thing that's always puzzled me, and that's that, I mean, at some point they did learn sacrifice, ritual sacrifice, which if you do your research, pretty much every historical people's at one point or another practiced it. It's just right. such an intelligent people with astronomy, mathematics, science, um, that they would still behave like that, much less such strong religious beliefs that found their way into their system. But as I started to say a moment ago, the thing that puzzles me the most is that as far as bloodletting goes, that was the elite. They they didn't pick people out yeah. of the crowd and force them to suffer. They they tortured themselves to keep the people well, to to perpetuate what it is that the, they perceived that the gods gave them. That's kind of an intriguing thought because that sure is not the way things work now. No. No. It it, it they, uh, you know we're always just talking about this um, alter cue and you know, it, you know you I come across a lot of these uh, articles where uh, this new cluster of pyramids what uh, was yeah, discovered in the Amazon basin uh, by the, the the use of uh, lidar and uh, other high tech gadgets? Are, are the places you're visiting um, uh, uh, all all the structures have been? Exposed, or are you know, just more and more of these temples being found? Uh, you know, um, you know, for so, someone like me who's never been there, you or are these pretty open? You know, yeah, a, a, areas, or are they uh, still heavily uh, uh, forested? Around the sites, I, you know, like ha, ha. it's a combination. Okay, it's a combination of both. I mean, a lot of the sites have been uh, cleared. You got to remember too, back when these were active. I mean, these they, they had plazas, huge plazas. There was no trees at all. I mean, there was structure, 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 plaza. It was a city, like a modern day city. Okay. And that was one of the the downfalls of the Maya, at least in Belize. We learned that from an archaeologist, Mister. Doctor, sorry, Jaime Alway, a great guy who did some great research and found that the Maya were victims of their own success, that they deforested at such a fast rate to accommodate their growing population and actually industrialize agriculture that they changed their environment. And I think you see a lot of that going on now. So there's another lesson we didn't learn. But yeah, there, there's kind of a mix. There's a, some sites they've allowed the jungle to retake a bit, or, or at least allowed the trees to stand. Koba, you get these nice walkways under trees. Uh, Tikal is probably my favorite, just just for feel alone, because the jungles come back, the birds are there, all the critters are around. You've got monkeys everywhere. Uh, pretty cool place. But all these sites are incredible. I mean, Takalikabash, I mean, God, we, we walked up on a few of them. We were pretty much the only people there. I mean, yeah. Copan, you're always going to have folks. Mm-hmm. But Eximche, uh, uh Pascualabac, for a while. 
mean, we have these places to ourselves, and we always enjoy that. And in fact, one of our things is try to be the first one in. You know, we try to stay as close as we can to to the entrance to any site that we're going to want to go see, and we're there before they open, and we want to run in and get in there before the the hordes come. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, they've only excavated God a, a minute percentage of what's out there at all these sites. Wow. And, and many of them, I mean, they haven't see, even begun to address it yet. I mean, again, with these LIDAR yeah. maps that are being produced, it, it's starting to kind of reach the point where there may have been little swathes of green belts, but all of Mesoamerica was tied together by gigantic cities. And whether or not oh, it was yeah. a singular gigantic city or ones that had different names, like, for example, to call, I mean, you've got these massive pyramids that tower above the, the roof line of the surrounding jungle. So obviously those were easy to find. It's all those little habitations and those little ceremonial places and the steam baths that litter that jungle that they haven't even began to touch yet. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's – Tikal is considered – I mean the downtown is considered 222 square miles, and they've excavated a fraction of a percentage. It's just it, – they, they excavated the big stuff because it was obvious. The rest of it's still hidden in jungle. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, and then you've got you've got El Mirador, you've got Calakmul, you've got uh, you know these huge enormous sites that they've just begun to tear into, but they don't have the funding and the resources to to get there in a hurry. Yeah, and the really sad thing is that who is getting there first are these cutters. Um, I mean, these guys are coming in with Cat four fifties and equipment, and their intention is to steal as much as they can before any kind of authority or college or whomsoever shows up and hawk all that stuff on the black market. Drug dealers got to spend their money somewhere. Mm. Dave, you just mentioned Ty Call and on your your website, you have a lot of uh, photos uh, of the uh, uh, towering pyramid there, and and uh, that's another one. Uh, uh, another site that really uh, in- intrigues me. Are there any uh, dimensions or similarities to uh, the Giza pyramids that would show some kind of uh, worldwide uh pyramid building going on contemporaneously? You know, based on Tikal, I would say no, because okay. Tikal is is very different. And that, that was one of the, I mean, the, those, the structures there are far taller, they're far skinnier, they're, hmm. uh, and they've got these big mask-type tops. They're very different than any of the, the other sites that I've seen. You go to Chichen Itza, you go to Koba, you know, you can, uh, well, and non-Maya, but Teotihuacan for sure. You know, and you'll see very kind of this, your standard idea of what a pyramid should look like because of ancient Egypt. Um, right. And there are definite similarities in, in other Maya sites for sure. But at Tikal, I, you know, I'm not sure. Rob, you might have chime in if you've got anything I don't, but I haven't come across anything, and uh, well, they the are Egyptian differently py- shaped. Yeah, the, the Egyptian pyramids are at 63-degree angles, and there is it, – it's out of the Russian Federation. Some of their science is a bit unusual, but there is conclusive science that 
a 63 degree angle pyramid with a certain base size aligned on magnetic north will prevent mold and you know blade sharpen mm -hmm. and all of this sort of esoteric stuff as far as the pyramids the maya pyramids go even from site to site they look different i mean they're all pretty much in egypt they do. they're sort of constructed the same it's important to bear in mind that as far as the maya were concerned with all these structures it wasn't about creating an interior space there may have actually been burials in many of these maya pyramids unlike what you encounter in egypt contrary to popular belief um, mm -hmm. Right. It was it was about creating a space, a theatrical space, because the Maya were big on performance. Um, you know, dancing. Yep. Um, the, the shaman doing his you know his curly routine and you know the whole stick. And so it was the ball game. Exactly. It was a background um, for that. It wasn't necessarily to create a space that somebody could occupy inside. Those usually occurred away from those ceremonial plazas in a completely different area. So as far as the I mean, it's weird because there are pyramids on all the continents, uh, to the best of my understanding, except the ones under ice presently. So, I mean, they occur in China, and China is presently planting trees. Mm -hmm. around, they're dumping dirt and planting trees around their pyramids yeah. to disguise them from space them. because they don't want to be associated. Yeah, they want to hide it. They occur everywhere. It's just like the dolmens in Europe. They occur everywhere, even here in America, as Barbara well knows, yeah. over on the East Coast. They're everywhere. So the, the, the thread of thought of, you know, something being tasked, whatever it was, or what the motivation was, that's all unknown. That's one of the things that we find the most intriguing. It's like stand back and look at that thing and go, wow, what were they thinking? I mean, what was the thought? This would have taken thousands of people 15, 20 years to build. What was the big deal? Yeah. Well, but then you, you do have a distinct similarity in, in God structures and systems. That's what's intrigued me the most is you've got, you know, grain gods in all these ancient cultures that are, they're all the same. Yep. Osiris repeats himself several times. Osiris to the Maya is Hun Hunapu. Osiris yep. to the Hopi is Masao. He just yep. keeps popping up. It's the same guy. It's the same Orion thing. It's just, it's bizarre. So how does that get passed thousands of years ago, you know, when people can't cross the seas? Yeah. And by the way, Dave, I, I learned recently, you know, when you sight down through the arch there in Santa Catalina and Antigua, and you're looking at what we call uh, Agua, Mount Agua, mm -hmm. the, the, the Maya called the Tunapu. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The first, yeah. Yeah. Dave, you were just talking about these expansive cities and you know rog just mentioned uh mount agua um out on the perimeter of a lot of these sites you know you know you, you, know, you gave us the vis visualization of you know the jungles or you know just, just beyond the uh uh ruins but you know uh with, with that many people living in these cities or uh, just uh, in the area to be able to come to the festivals and participate in the, in the activities of the plazas, uh, you know, people have to eat. Uh, just to tie in uh, maybe something from Joan Conover's show uh, – Two three weeks ago with us, were there uh, 
was there evidence of canals that have been discovered yet, or is it some kind of irrigation ditches that? Oh, they were they were they weren't ditches. They were well engineered. They were basically yep. tile lined with stones. We just we just saw some last week at Taco Like a Bosch. I mean, they, and they still their, work. Their organization for agriculture was on a scale probably you know more important than like the FDA here in the 60s. Let's say back in the 40s. I mean, they knew what needed to happen, and the people got together and achieved that end so that everyone could be taken care of and fed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, that's not... Very organized, very good engineering. Yeah, outstanding engineering. And it's not just it's not just the Maya in South America. We have the same thing here in this country. I mean, I've seen them in... Oh, I've seen canals in or uh, east canals in Louisiana. Um, they speculate that there's some in Florida. The the I, I never know how to pronounce them correctly, but the Hohokam or the Hohokam. Um, I've heard they, it both ways. Yeah, they. I mean, they had extensive canals in New Mexico. You know, long before the Europeans and, ever arrived. And and Arizona. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh, you're identifying with being an Arizonian now, huh? I am. And as a matter of fact, there is a Hohokam site right next to the airport in Phoenix. It's ridiculously close. So oh, if you're Snake early Town? for a flight. Yeah. Well, yeah, Snake, yeah. no, it's Snake Town's in Casa, Casa Grande. Um, this is, uh, God, I can't remember what they call it, but it's right next to the airport in Phoenix. Go see it. It's it's a good one. So was it preserved intentionally when they, they leveled the place for the airport? It's just off to the. I believe, yeah, I believe it was. It was. It got lucky. It was left. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. They built the airport uh, off to the. No, off to the east of it. Interesting. Yeah, Mark. I'm sure you've uh-huh. heard of Grant before. We always go back to William Denovan, who was the. He was professor emeritus at University of Wisconsin, and he wrote this book about the pre-Columbian population of indigenous peoples in the Americas. And in that book, when he, I mean, when he first published that book the first time around, I think in the 60s or early 70s, he spoke about the canals that he had encountered. This was long before LIDAR. This is simply going out and walking around with a tape measure in um, – oh, it was either Peru or Bolivia, but anyway, somewhere in South America. And as a result of the terracing and the irrigation, I mean the well-engineered irrigation and the amount of people it would have taken to construct that and then feed – I mean, he puts the pre-Columbian population of the Americas at 50 million people. Oh, not, a, not a half a dozen scrambling around in loincloths with a basket on their head. This is a well-thought-out <laughs> right. society. Uh, it, yeah, since you know, I, I'm you know one of you know pro- probably a lot of the number you know large number of. People in the audience. Uh, I, I've never been there. I've just seen, uh, you know, f- photos. But I, I would have, I would have never guessed that the population was, you know, at, at, at that, ex- you know, 50 million people. What. Uh, you know, thousand, two thousand years ago. I, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't have imagined it, it, it was that large. So, uh, um, you know, we're it, it just yeah, sounds it sounds like we're talking about an empire that was far more vast 
then uh, we, we realize today. Well, that, from what that, it sounds like, go ahead, David. It, it doesn't really. It does. I was just going to add that it, it just doesn't sound like it was a quote empire. It sounds like there were several, many different groups of people living in harmony mm-hmm. in different areas all over North, Central, and South America. Uh, it, at least that's how it comes across, and of course that's uh, you know before the uh, Catholics came over and, and had fun with everybody, and, and the English decided that you know Manifest Destiny was going to uh, rape the uh, U.S. Um, anyway, we won't get into that, but um, no, we're yeah, being good I mean, tonight. yeah, they, yeah, right. Now there there were a lot of people here, and what does that say for for those systems and 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 what happened when when they got here? Yeah, that's that's a lot of people whacked for no no good reason. And uh, that's isn't that good timing for Thanksgiving? You you know, oh. you're, you're. I know I'm oh, going to rain on by Thanksgiving. The way, we're, we're, we're indigenous people are referring to um, Thanksgiving as National Morning Day now. I like that. I'll I'll go along yeah. with that. Yeah. I mean, come on, you you haul people in for dinner and then go out and kill their women and children while they're eating. That's a, that's a great thing to celebrate every year. But nobody knows yeah. that, do they? Nobody even knows the nope. true history of Thanksgiving. When you said it was different groups of people living in harmony, I mean, the, the trade routes that you and I have, we didn't discover them yeah. by any means, but just the research that we've done of, of how far some of these people walk carrying certain goods. There, Well, besides the fact there's an accord between point A and point B, you can't get to point A to point B if it's a bunch of thugs between you and them. So, right. you know, without well, doubt. I mean, the, the sacrificial system that the Maya and the Aztecs and even the Toltecs may have been involved in, I, I think was it, – it's hard to understand. We can't possibly get our heads around it, but it was safer then than it is now because those guys, what, let's say 1,600 miles from Central America to the southwest, like from the Macosash that was carried, you know, the birds yeah. that were physically carried, mm-hmm. that's, that's a long trip. That doesn't happen just overnight, so everybody must have been kind of getting along. Well, yeah, and it, the other the other thing is that Richard Thornton, you know, the the book that he turned us on to, the firsthand account of the uh, God, I want to say he was Dutch, a Dutch guy who walked through the yeah. Southeast United States in the late 1400s. I want to, well, actually not late, uh, 1460s, 1470s, maybe. God, I wish I could remember the title of that. Anyway, great read. And this guy's talking about walking uh, up on uh, people speaking. Uh, Hebrew tongues, speak uh, Muslim, quote, Muslim-speaking blacks. Okay, now, now he's going through villages. He actually came up on a village in North Georgia called Kopal. Kopal huh. comes from Guatemala. Right. We just brought them back. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it, that doesn't happen by accident. And uh, obviously those communities were, were close enough that he could walk through them, you know, and uh, everybody seemed to be getting along pretty decently. I'm sure there was a scuffle here and there, but... Yeah. Okay, Dave, Dave. You just mentioned uh, Richard Thornton's uh, research. He, he's uh, been a guest with us, uh, and he, he, you know he's talking about the uh, trade routes and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, this would be a, a good time. To, you know, just to get, give an example, and, and, and Rob brought up the. Uh, uh, scarlet macaws that are uh, 
or found in Arizona. Uh, you know, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about what was what's the story behind the macaws in Arizona? They're not um, uh, indigenous. No, they're not indigenous. We don't encounter those big parrot-type birds. Scarlet macaw is a parrot. And, by the way, we saw scads of them, dozens of them, at, at Copan, which yeah. is amazing to see such a resplendent animal in its natural environment, much less have a bunch of them buzz you as a group. It's like yet another reason to visit yeah. that part of the world. But um, yep. Scarlet macaws, we know, were employed by the Maya, in, or their feathers were employed by the Maya, in their costuming, the priests wore them, the royalty wore them. And for some odd reason, way up in the southwest, about 1,600 miles away, um, they were also being raised at Chaco Canyon, which we won't go into Chaco Canyon at the moment because we're supposed to avoid the Hopi, so fine and dandy. But the upshot of the thing is, is that those types of birds really impress themselves upon their owners or the person that they perceive as taking care of them. And if you don't care for them, they die very quickly. They start to lose their feathers. They get, um, uh, not viruses, I can't even think of the word I'm looking for, but they, they get diseases, and they die quite quickly if they're separated from the person that they're accustomed to being around, which means, sure, there was a trade route, and sure, there were scarlet macaws being kept and raised in the southwest of America that obviously came through Mexico or Guatemala or Belize or wherever, which means that means the Maya carried them, and stayed with them. They stayed where they brought those birds and cared for them, which means when, when all these archaeologists go, oh, the Maya were never in America, well, you've got evidence right there. The Edge of Cedars State Park in Utah has a macaw sash that's 1,000 years old. It was made here in the States from a bird that was transported from all the way down to Mesoamerica. That means somebody carried it that it was buddies with. But they want to deny that the Maya were ever in America, and it's abundantly obvious, and that's a perfect example of how information is right there if you're willing to take the time and look for it and then call, I'll say, nonsense on current academia. Yep. Yeah, and I'll give you another one. Uh, cacao. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, another, you know, they found cacao beans up here, and, uh, well, they found, what, 166 cylinder vessels under Chaco Canyon, under Pueblo Benito, yes. that were yes, used to drink. Cacao, uh, a cacao beverage, which the Maya royalty drank. Doesn't grow up here. So, I nope. mean, it's it's kind of pretty simple math when you when you come across these things. It's just crazy. That it's not. It's just not getting passed. Well, and the funny thing in that instance, I think, yeah, we were together in Chaco. I can't remember how many years ago, but the lady who'd done that research did a, a lecture yeah. of, about finding the residue of the cacao bean mm -hmm. beverage in these vessels outside at night. It was awesome. It was like nine o'clock yeah. at night. It's still light. That out. was it's cool. That was very cool. That's yet another example, much like this William Denovan thing, the guy that we were talking about from Wisconsin a few minutes ago, there is research that is so accepted by academia that they, they can't refute it. They don't even want to take it on and argue with it. But the truth of the matter is they never talk about it intentionally because it's contrary to them yep. getting their next four year grant at whatever college they're working for. Yeah, it, it. and I mean, your only hope—if you only hope—if you want to learn something, is you got to go punk. Right, and I mean, if you want to go on, Mark, if you want to go on beyond that in terms of connections, uh, my God, there, there's more connections than there are non-connections. 
I mean, Richard's story of, of tracking his people, the Creek, uh, where did they right. come from? How did, how did they end up in North Georgia? He finds that there were four migrations, two by land and two by sea in ancient times from the land where the Maya were and from the area, an area down in East Peru. I mean, come on. Yeah, and and right they there. sailed across the Gulf of Mexico and brought the Mayan blue uh, uh, dyes. Right, not, and they made the town Copal, you know, and, and did a whole lot of things and built structure and terrace, there, there's terraced ag, agriculture up there. I mean, there's, it's just it's, – it's right in front of everybody. I mean, Cahokia, good lord. Come on. Those are pyramids. I mean, yep. he, the Maya that escaped Maya land were not the royalty. They didn't want to escape. The people who escaped were the people like the Eagle Clan of the Hopi, uh, you know, who talk about getting involved in ritual, ritual sacrifice and learning that was a bad thing and, and bailing. And, and Richard's saying the same thing, that the creek, that his people – Man, our you know his stories are about God. They have ritual human sacrifice. This ain't right. We got to get out of here. So they bail. Well, there you go. And it's not a long trip, especially if you hug the coast. And with all the the, the people who you know are poo pooing the sea travel thing, Jesus. I mean, the Maya are a seafaring people. Yep. As a matter of fact, been... very... go ahead, Dave. No, after you. I was going to offer the um, the very northernmost part of the islands off the coast of Belize, Ambergris Cay, and all those places that have become huge tourist attractions. There's a, a really convenient place for people to bring large ships between those islands to the mainland. And as diving has become more popular in the last few years, they've realized that it really looks like it was man-made. So it was excavated for larger ships. Fine and dandy, whatever. Some divers were down there oh, back in the late 70s, and they found these massive stones, like huge boulders, that had this incised sort of circle in the middle as though they had been carved to be hasped to something. And then they looked at their location of these two objects within the body of this area that they initially thought had been dredged or excavated, and they realized not only did they excavate it, they put a bridge up. They put a toll bridge up. These were the weights that swung the thing <laughs> open in and out. So people could access it, but no, the Maya couldn't cross an ocean. They couldn't even make it to Florida. No, no of course not. That's ridiculous. I mean, oh, it, the same things going on with the the same. Well, this is, you know, you can take down the Beringia theory the same way. I mean, you, we've talked to you've talked about Kennewick, man. We we brought that up several times. Right. There's the Kelp Highway. Kelp Highway is totally viable. Oh, if, if you're down in South America, why couldn't you hug the coast all the way north? It's ridiculous to think well, you couldn't do that. Even if you can't wrap your head around the fact that they can't cross the sea, or they could, rather, you could probably wrap it around that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as uh, – we've done this before, but for those of us who have not heard us speak before, as far as Kennewick Man goes, uh, expired individual found during a hydroplane race. On the Columbia River back in, I think, the 70s, turns out that he was 92 to 9,400 years old. He had been mm-hmm. ritually bathed. Oh, that's lovely. It's like a, like a Who concert. And I sit, all, I sit in line all day for tickets for that. So, um, 
So the upshot of the thing is these guys were at a, a big outdoor event, a three-day event. They find the remains of this individual, and so they, of course, call the authorities, who then realize that this isn't like a recent murder or something. This guy's been in the ground for years. And the upshot of the thing is Doug Owsley, who is considered the expert on skull history at the Smithsonian, looked at the skull and went, well, this is obviously yep. Polynesian. Well, since Doug looked at it, they then had – other people, um, a gentleman from Copenhagen, whose name I, I couldn't pronounce if I had to, did DNA research on it and realized that the guy was quite literally from the northernmost islands of Japan, which makes him of the Ainu. The Ainu people are an indigenous folk who occupy the northernmost island of Japan. And looking at where he lived and all these spots he could have hopped to along that coastline, pretty easy for him to end up in the Columbia River. After only a couple of months, further DNA research clearly indicated this guy lived off a diet of sea life. He ate seals, he ate clams, and he found himself in the inland of Washington almost 10,000 years ago. Not, it's not mm-hmm. hard to build a boat, folks. It, it, no, it isn't. It, it, Rob, you just mentioned uh, uh, Polynesian cultures, uh, you, you know, this – show we have coming up right after uh, Christmas uh, you know, where we get into uh, some Asian cultures uh, you know their language seems to uh, survive in the ancient uh, Ecuadorian language um, it, what you're saying it, is you know backed up by the Kennewick man as well as uh, you know, like uh, uh, the Samoan language uh, you know being found in e- Ecuador. Yeah, you know, there's linguistic proof. I, it's it's all there in front of us, like you said earlier. I mean, I, I I don't know how we can continue doing the uh, denial that uh, ancient people didn't know how to build ships. Oh sure, it's easy. You just like them. Dave spoke about earlier. You just every class that comes into your classroom every year, you keep lying to them. I mean. Yeah. At this point, it's got to be really difficult, at least in my mind or my impression, for these academic professionals to not have at least some kind of peripheral kind of research going on in the back of their head. But they still feel that what was first expounded in the latter part of the 19th century by the National Geographic guys from Europe that were littering, that were going around the world gathering information, that's what they have to teach. So it's easy. So that's how that happens. As far as linguistics go, um, I lived in Hawaii for years, and I had many conversations with both indigenous people and, like, rangers who were researchers. And part of my history is Nisqually. I'm northwest coast Salish. And much of our language is predicated on Polynesian. The, the totem building, Polynesian. The way we build canoes, oh, Polynesian. Captain Cook arrives there in 1776. He tries to take off. He kind of blows the whole thing, comes back. That's a long story, but he ended up dead. 
The upshot mm-hmm. of the thing is, Captain Cook was actually a pretty cool guy. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, he really was. He understood even back in, you know, you know what, almost 300 years ago, 250 years ago, that his physical presence and his crew's presence in these, at that time, unknown places was going to affect the natives. And he felt somewhat responsible for that, which clearly shows that he was a conscientious individual. But one thing he always did was, like, every place they stopped, does anybody want to come with us? We're exploring the world. Come with us. When he arrived at Kealakekua Bay on the Big Island of Hawaii and explained to the indigenous people living there, here's where I'm going. Anybody want to come? Only two guys said, yeah. And he's like, well, why only two people? They're like, because everybody else has already been there. We know the way. We go back and forth all the time. Kealakekua, Big Island, west side. Pacific Northwest, east side of the island, 2,200 miles away. They were making that journey with regularity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, One of many. And if you look at, uh, by the way, if you look at some Maya sites, too, and some of the artwork, I'll bring up Ekbalam. That Ekbalam blew my mind, and very few people go to Ekbalam. I, I don't know why, because I, 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 I keep going back to that because of the faces that were, were carved there. And the artwork, the the Egyptian mudras that are scribed inside of a wall up in the jaguar uh, mouth at the top of the thing, it's just stunning. I mean, you, you look at one face and you're like, okay, that looks Caucasian. You look at another one. Well, that looks distinctly Polynesian. Mm-hmm. You look at another one. Well, that looks African. How do yep. they know what these different peoples looked like? And there are distinctly different representations there. Yeah, and it's but not just Polynesian. Tone, it's one of them, yeah. I, I was I talked over the I spoke over the top of you, Dave, but it's not just skin tones like like well I don't know if we had this conversation, I think right. Martin and I did earlier, so I can touch on it in a while, but it's like it's physiology. It's like yes. cultural things like with the Maya that, that boarding of the head when they're young so that the nose protrudes mm-hmm. because they found that attractive. Um, I mean all that's represented there at Ekbalam in these different it's not even a panel, it's just like one big Really out of place hieroglyph, I guess I'd call it. Yeah. Well, it's not a hieroglyph. I mean, what would you call that thing? It is the jaguar mouth. No, that God. Well, it, why is the jaguar mouth? We have all those different people represented in color. Well, it's around the. It's up above it. It's a. It's above it. It's down below. Oh, you mean on the interior, the inside of the wall there, the little Egyptian-looking figures. Yeah. Those were crazy. The mudras. Yes. Those were crazy. Yeah, I mean, and those were one of the you know, last things we noticed. We're, we're looking at the, the, the stone, and all of a sudden I look to the inside of the wall, and we look together. We're like, what the hell are those doing there? Yeah. And I took, you know, you, no, you could, you could only get so close, but they were in full color. They were color. They were drawn in color on the side of this plastered entrance inside the Jaguar mouth. You could only get so close, but I took a picture and blew it up, and I'll be damned. If they don't look like Egyptians sitting down in a certain mood, you're like a teacher leading a class. Yes. Yes. That was my impression as well. You know, I sent some pictures to Mark earlier. I don't know whatever happened to them, but it's not important because I can speak to them without folks actually seeing them. But there was, there's a great museum, the BC Royal Museum in Victoria, Canada. Okay. That has a, a floor dedicated every year to a specific you know, peoples around the world or whatever. They've done a Viking thing. Last year was Egyptian. This most recent year was a Maya exhibit. And the vast majority of things exhibited there came from 
the from the Patan area, the northern okay. eastern part of Guatemala. And Uchaktun, which is a city there, there was some leader, some king in the past, and he passed on. And within his funerary objects were 12 representations of individuals who probably served him in his life, a scribe, a ball player. You get the picture. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So within the body of that exhibit, they place these two figures together. One is quite tall, and he has a fairer skin. His head, his forehead was obviously boarded as a child, so he gets that really prominent sort of nose. And next to him is a shorter, very round, black figure with obviously African attributes. This thing was buried, these two objects were buried 1,300 years ago. I mean, artists really weren't open to, like, you know, Picasso interpretations back then. It was literally representational <laughs> right. art, you know? It's yeah. not like I'm going to put all his eyes on one side of his face. They just didn't do that then. You got one guy no. who's obviously from one place right next to another guy who's obviously from another part of the world. But that never happened even when you're looking at those two objects together. Come on. Well, remember remember what our friend from the university told us when we brought up the Olmec head. you got to oh, walk no, no. around those those are an from all sides. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, those aren't African. You're just looking at it from the front. You need to look at it from the side. <laughs> now, okay, granted, well, they are they are 3D, so you do need to walk around them and look at the whole thing. But it still looks African. <laughs> well, that's true. But in that regard, and I'm not defending him in any respect, but in that regard, he was referring specifically to the features. In this instance, these ceramic – what I'm referring to with right. the Shaktun are ceramic icons that were made by somebody who saw these individuals and saw the differentiation between those two. And it's not just size right. and scale and appearance, it's color as well. Well, there we go. And Ushak Tun, I think, would have been about, I mean, they were definitely late classic when they went down the tubes, but I think that was about 732. So that's about 200 years before a lot of the other, you know, late uh, classic period cities started to fail. They failed sooner than a lot of the others. Hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, Rob, when... You visited the um, Mayan uh, display that that was on uh, in the Canadian uh, Museum for you know the summer. Uh, You know, I have thought about. yeah, you know, some of the uh, reports that uh, maybe you uh, uh, remember seeing uh, from Jason Gerald's, you know, uh, you know, work with you uh, two, where uh, you know one of the skulls from the the Kanawha Valley mounds look Peruvian. Uh, you know, Brian Forrester, and uh, you know, you've worked with. Marcia Moore uh, a lot too. Hi Marcia, get the archive to you tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, she she's worked really closely with uh, uh, Brian Forrester, and you know the you know, he, he's been all over Ancient Aliens with the you know really uh, elongated skulls. It, it, did this Canadian exhibit? 
have any uh, information like that on um, these unusual skulls? Uh, or did, did you see them on your trips? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I find that to be a fascinating subject. Well, it is fascinating, but as far as the Maya specifically go, they practiced this form of boarding their kids. I mean, when the kids were young and mm-hmm. their skulls were not well formed, they would place an object. And this was, and here's what's interesting in the cultures where you encounter this, it's limited to royalty. You don't do it with the poor kids, yeah. but the no. royal women would take their children and place an object on their forehead right above the bridge of their nose and then bind it behind their neck so that their skull grew in an odd formation. Now, as far as the Maya are concerned, and this may be true in other cultures that I'm not as conversant with, anomalies, um, be they physiological or be they even psychological or developmental, were considered sacred. So a guy that had one arm shorter than another, <clears throat> excuse me, had um, special value. Um, some A dwarf person would also have special value within the body of the Maya. Right. As far as the elongated skulls, yeah, they intentionally elongated them. Why? Well, at some point in history, there was a culture that found that attractive, which we could probably, you know, spend the rest of our lives trying to explore where that first occurred and what it was most important. I mean, why it was important to these folks. But as far as the Canada exhibit goes, no, they, they did not discuss that. But on the northernmost part of Vancouver Island, Marcia has personally seen the remains of an individual named Lucy Moon, who was one of the last lines of royalty of whatever tribe it was that she was associated with, and she did indeed have an elongated skull. That's a whole different subject. So the next time she's on, work her over about it. Yeah, I mean, okay. and at some point, you know, Mark, it could be – Yeah, I, I tend to think that these peoples had contact and or, or, or received knowledge from the same beings. It just it, it, it's it's too much. Uh, there's only a few ways that can happen. I suppose the uh, collective unconscious is another, but that's a tall order when it comes to spanning the globe and and with all these practices down to the burials. You, know, you mentioned Jason Gerald, the uh, the giant burials under the mounds in the United States. Okay, you've got a giant six feet under. You've got his crew uh, ritually uh, sacrificed and buried above him around you know under a wooden frame under yep. a dirt mound. You yep. see the exact same thing in the UK. How, how does that happen at a time when people can't cross the seas? When it comes to, you know, the Maya and the elongated schools, maybe maybe they learned that from Egypt. You know, they've got a similar god system. They've got the grain god. You know, the Hopi, I'm sorry to bring up the Hopi again, they were directed to travel the whole, the whole earth in all directions and meet at the center place. And you've got over 40 different clans that somehow found their way to northern Arizona at a time without cell phones, maps, or, or anything like that, at different times with different oral traditions from different places. That's kind of fascinating. And they, too, have an Osiris grain god. You know, uh, they didn't get into the uh, school deformation, but, uh, you know, maybe they carried some other things. It, it's just, uh, you know, the Dogon. The Dogon were in Egypt. What if the Dogon were among, or or the ancient Dogon were among the Olmecs who came over and passed that to the Maya? There's so many possibilities. It's just fascinating to me. And the Dogon and the Hopi have quite a deep connection for some odd reason. Go figure. 
But uh, it, it, I, you know, one connection would be you know, very astute uh, astronomy. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, th- I think uh, Barbara's going to be covering that on a, a upcoming show s- soon. But you know, you know, we'll talk about that later. Just you know, what the li- listeners' appetites for what we have in the works. Well, but it is the you know, Rob, did you see any more? Evidence and like you know possible uh, cranial deformation. Uh, you know, could that be evidence of migrations from other planets or solar systems? You know, suppo- you know, Giorgio says his lapel pin of the uh, airplane was found in. Uh, next to the uh, like buried underneath some uh, Mesoamerican uh, pyramid, I did. You know, was there uh, things on display at, at the Canadian Museum or just there in the jungles that you know would make it uh, someone think that you know okay you know here we have evidence of aliens well first of all i'd be intrigued how giorgio ever managed to excavate underneath a pyramid that would require like hundreds of people and a huge budget to find said airplane but um i think that's where it it supposedly came from it's based on some artifact from there i think i I thought that's what he said on Well, the the reference to airplanes that I can equate is south of the Paracas people, there were Peruvians that made these little um, gold ornaments that are kept in a a museum in Costa Rica underground. You have to take this – you have to get through security and go down through a secure elevator down to view these things, and a lot of people thought they were flying craft, airplanes of some kind. It turns out what they were doing was venerating the bee god, which the Maya also did. So yeah. maybe there's maybe there's a bit of a connection there. Now, as far as the Paracas thing goes, that culture was eh, they were kind of uh, about the same time as as the Maya, and there may have been again Maya people moving obviously to the north. But why wouldn't they go to the south as well? So they may have found said appearance attractive, incorporated it, and then as they moved to the southwest, there may have been a northwest to southwest connection. We don't know. But I do know that as far as the, the northwest goes, we did not do um, cranial deformation. But you go farther north up to the very tip of Vancouver Island, which is about 100 and, yeah, about 160, 180 miles from here. It is evident. Okay. I would yeah. offer that pretty pretty much every ancient culture, uh, you know, attributed their knowledge to beings from the sky. Yep. Mm-hmm. To, to star beings. So, yep. you know, if you want to go out on a, yeah. So, you know, if you want to go on an alien kick and, and do that, that's, that's great. Uh, my problem with that whole thing is that you're not talking enough about the people in the oral tradition and, and diving into it on that level. But, you know, maybe, maybe that's just to sell the show. Who knows? Um, but is it, there's obviously something going on. Uh, everybody reveres star beings, um, you know, the Kachina culture. Uh, mm-hmm. Supposedly, I 
supposedly I saw one. The Dogon have a Kachina culture. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. I'm open-minded. Uh, you know, lay it on me. I'll 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 buy it. Well, you got to think. Even as far as the Maya go, they they felt that, you know, the ball court represented Shabalba, and once you had your right. nine layers above and your thirteen below, every time the game was played, they were opening that portal to Shabalba. Well, Shabalba was the portal itself once you were down there back to the Milky Way, which they called right. the South Bay, the White Way. Well, they constructed roads consistently wet, three feet high, 20 feet wide, painted white. Yep. They called it the Sack Bay, the way back to where you came from. Which which were flattened using a what? A wheel. Which yeah, but they didn't have the wheel, did No. Every Maya researcher says no. they didn't have the wheel. Yeah, they did. Sure they did. They just used it for ceremonial purposes. It, it was a special thing. Only in that instance, they would incorporate wheels in toys made for kids because that's part of oral tradition that you can have your hands yep. on. They could hand it to some child and explain to them, this is a sacred object. This is what it represents. It's part of your way back home. Don't use it for anything else. Yep. It, it, uh, Dave, Dave and Rob, for, for so, someone like uh, me who – um yeah, it's interesting. I you know, the Tycol uh photos on your website uh and uh, other ones uh, I've seen of that uh pyramid uh just really you know, fascinate me. I'd it would be nice to uh go down there. Um you know, what is you know, how's the safety for you know groups of people who you know, would like to uh, v- oh visit <laughs> a, a place like that? You hear it? No, this, this is I'm so I'm so glad you asked. This is uh, one something that uh, we're both adamant about. Uh, never once did we feel our safety in question whatsoever. We're smart to begin with. We we travel a lot. So, you know, it, it comes down to being a smart human being. There are areas of Detroit, L.A., Seattle, I don't care, name the city in the U.S. that I would never want to walk into. Right. Uh, if you've got your wits about you and you're not a stupid drunk American running around just trying to get drunk in a different town, you know, off a few less bucks, you're going to be fine. Oh, you know, that. Just, yeah, although we have done that, yeah, we've played both ways, but uh, it's it, it's so safe that the the U.S. State Department, uh, I, I've got a real thing in my craw with with the U.S. State Department. They've had Guatemala on the most dangerous places to visit list for what did uh, Jose tell us? Ten years, fifteen years, something Honduras, like that. Same thing. It's the, uh, just not to cut you off, but I mean, as far as Guatemala goes, it's the only place on the planet I have ever been where. Folks don't look down at the sidewalk. They don't look down at the ground. No. Stranger comes by, they engage you, and everybody, depending yeah. on the time of day, you know, buenos dias, buenos tardes, whatever, you know, be polite to people. When you and I were just at, at Chi like a week ago, I spotted these four college students, and, you know, we made eye contact at the same time. I think you were a bit in front of me and didn't notice, but they were obviously learning English, and they spotted an American. And they were like, hey, nice to see you. How are you doing? Where are you from? Just everybody there is so – Polite, it's insane. It becomes 
kind of smile. unusual after a while because we don't encounter we don't encounter that here. No, and you see smiles everywhere. And the 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 problem with traveling down there is you got to come home. You know, we, yeah. we both get to the Miami airport to get our connections, and within ten minutes of being in that airport, walking around pissy people with pissy attitudes. It's like God, you know. Can I please go back? Yeah. You know, great volcanic soil, all this fresh produce, some of the best food you're ever going to get. Uh, people just the people were wonderful, though. The pe- the people were the highlight for sure. Yep, yeah. yep, yeah. always are. Yeah, and the thing that's unusual yeah, so, as far as the, those that are in an academic environment again, and they want to quote the number of people that are living below the poverty level. They were quite oh, literally yeah. referring to folks that we encountered. Um, there's quite a lot of them uh, as you leave Shayla or Kesseltonango and you're driving through mm-hmm. the mountains towards Takalikabosh. I mean, it's just abundant farms everywhere. And these are subsistence farmers. They grow enough to feed their mm-hmm. own families. They trade the rest, sell the rest. If you were to isolate any one of those individuals and say, hey, look, you know, if you go to school for six months, you can be a waiter in Antigua. If you go to school for four years, you can do this or you can do that. They'd be like, look, I got it made. I've got it made. I'm with my family. I'm happy. I work with the land every day. Well, those folks show up on those holes as being disenfranchised, but they're not. They're the richest people in the world. They are in many respects. History, culture. uh, I mean, everything down there. The artistry is amazing. I mean, there are Maya women. You can go to this little village on Lake Auditlan that we hit, uh, Santa Catalina Palopo. Palopo. And, yeah, and you can see these. there's Maya women in cooperatives that are weaving, and they'll spend two weeks making a table runner. Two weeks making a table runner that you can pick up down there for, what, 20, 20 bucks? 20, wow. 30, 40 bucks. And, and, that and they live in living for them. They feel comfortable with that because they have created something. That's like the old artistic mm-hmm. thing that got lost in the 1940s. You know, when American culture, artistic culture, moved over to Europe. You know, it's like I've made this. I am offering this to you. It may enrich your life yeah. in some way. Would you like to have it? And then you you reward them for their effort. Right. And they, I mean, they live in what, by our standards, and by our, I don't mean mine. I mean our society. By our standards in Western culture up here in the United States, they live in what we would consider a lot of them squalor. And and it's not. They're happier than we are. They don't – I mean, they've got everything they need. They don't need yep. any more. Yep. They don't want any more. God, why would I you? Mean, you don't need a Cadillac. <laughs> seriously, dude, when was the last time you walked through any town in America, let's say 8 in the morning, 7 in the morning, you know, it's early, the sun's coming up. And everybody is outside cleaning, sweeping the sidewalk, scrubbing the sidewalk on their hands and knees. doesn't happen here. Nobody cares. Down there, granted, yes, people from the West, like you said, they refer to it as squalor. But those, they're they're so well organized and they're so, I mean, they're so conservative in their belief system that it's important to make an impression on others. And the pride, just the pride in whatever you have. Damn it, it's going to be clean. I'm going to take care of it. God, I saw that everywhere down there. Like Rob said, first thing in the morning, everybody's out sweeping. Why? Well, because it's dirty. Sweep it. <laughs> there was even an instance, I don't know if you recall, we went over to Los Sepulturas. Los Sepulturas could be considered a separate ruined site 
But there oh, was yeah, a I forgot about that one. Like we just talked about, there was a sack bay between Copan, Honduras, and Las Sepulturas, which yep. was considered to be kind of a residential area, but it was for not necessarily the elite, but again, the scribes, the priests, uh-huh. the, um, the artisans. And the, I mean, I've been there before, probably been 10 years since I'd been there, and it was the same caretaker keeping an eye on the place, and his wife was outside sweeping leaves off the jungle floor into a pile. Using a broom made out of a branch. Yes, because it wasn't organized. We must be organized. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. This is awesome, man. And, and it, it hurts me that, you know, we, we did learn while we were down there that uh, tourism to Guatemala has dropped 40% in the last year. Yeah. That's dramatic. And I'm not, you know, we're not getting paid to pump up Guatemala, you know, as a commercial or anything. But by mm-hmm. God, get your butt down there. What a wonderful oh, yeah. place. Hey, yeah. I, 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 Go to I, the I, Highlands. Go to Shayla. Uh, uh, what's the awesome. uh, uh, food like? Uh, you said uh, just <laughs> qu- qu- quickly mentioned fresh fruits, oh, which uh, that sounds great. But, it, like, it, it, are there, like, a lot of uh, burrito-type? Meals nope. like I, nope. I, I'm not no. familiar with it. What, uh, what, uh, what, what, what do they usually prepare if you go into a restaurant or stop at a cafe? Tell you what, Dave, let me start oh. this one and I'll let you finish. There was a place that we found in Kesseltenango. Kesseltenango uh-huh. is a Nahuatl expression for a place named Tenango, meaning place of Quetzal being the national bird. So when the Spanish first arrived after they've encountered the Nahuatl and they moved from where Cortez started to conquer up in Mexico down to the south, tons of Quetzal's, Quetzaltenango. The actual name of the place is Shela or Shelahu. Shela has what is considered probably one of the best indigenous restaurants in the entire country. Their menu is, when it's all broken down, you've really got like four main things, which are the signature mm-hmm. Guatemalan dishes and then your sides. Um, we ordered all signature four of Maya dishes. Yes, these are Maya dishes. Yeah, that's that's important. Yep. So we ordered all four of them and split them up between us. I think, you know, like 40 quetzales, 50 quetzales. We're talking, what, 450 <laughs> to 50 bucks for a complete meal? And oh, yeah. in addition to the owner's daughter coming explaining the history of the dishes to us and what the source of these materials are and where they were grown and how the whole thing works, um, upon exiting the place, the gentleman that was our waiter – stood at the door, one hand behind the back, shook each one of our hands, and thanked us for coming in. That's what Guatemala is like. Amazing food, yep. cheap, and the people are so kind and so accommodating that it's kind of hard to get your head around if you've grown up in this country. Yeah, it is. It takes you back. It really does. Yep. It's, uh, it was amazing. You can't help but smile down there all the time. Nope. Yep, you walk around with a big, dumb grin. So, Mark, the uh, <laughs> yeah. dish down there is pepian. Pepian. Oh I yeah. If if you make it really simple, it only has 22 spices. If you want to get complex, it has up to 30. But its its signature flavors are roasted, smoked pumpkin seeds, cacao. It has chocolate in it, and then all the finesse that's associated with that. So it kind of acts like a stew base, and then pork or chicken or something of that nature is served, you know, inside of that stew base with rice on the side. I mean, you know, four bucks in your and stuff. beans. Everything. Oh, yeah. 
everything with black beans, but uh, yeah, which which posed its own uh, challenges. <laughs> yeah, from yeah. time to time, but uh, the food was my god, unreal. By and yeah. large, it was wonderful. The only exception I would put on the list is uh, Gringo Tenango, <laughs> Pan and Wichel on Lake Oslo. Yeah, no, that's become a, no, it's become a little bit touristy, but you go to the small villages and you, you can still find some good stuff. Well, and in the city, like Rob just said, that uh, Flor de Maya is what it's called. Awesome place. Yep. Well, Maya Flor, One of many. Yes. yes. Well, and on the heels of that, since I am going to go out on a limb and basically do an advertisement, if one finds himself in Copandra Arenas, Honduras, there's a place oh, called yes. Lola's. L-O-L-A, Lola's. Lola's, where a nice elderly Maya lady pumps the bellows with her left foot to keep the fire stoked while she does these skewered meat dishes and vegetable dishes over the top Pinchos. of that thing. Oh, amazing. And cheap, so cheap. So, Pinchos. Oh, yeah. So if, if so, someone would visit, um, like me, who uh, ha- has uh, very very little experience uh, with the Spanish language, other than being able to order at Taco Bell. What like is there any uh, do 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 a lot of the locals speak enough English to uh, you know uh, get get you uh, through the situation or are there uh, like Spanish and English translations at the restaurants? First of all, Mark, you will be pleased to know that there are Taco Bells in Guatemala. Uh, <laughs> At least one that we know of, yep. And it's in, in Guatemala City. Yeah. No, uh, no there's, there's in, one in, in Shayla, too. There is one in Shayla, that's right. Yes. And uh, unfortunately, the Golden Arches make their appearance down there as well. But uh, yeah. few and far between. Uh, for the most part, people are willing to help you in any way they can. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, but there is limited English yeah, when you get okay. into some of these places. Uh, they'll well, work with you. I would say, offer that as far as the limited English goes, you got to feel, you got to remember that these people feel conquered by Spanish. There are some villages that you go to that still speak their dialect of Mayan, um, mm-hmm. and they've never learned English because, or I'm sorry, they've never learned Spanish even. Um, even having some exchanges with people, there was an art gallery that we went into that we got some stuff from, and they would speak to us in Spanish. But when the family was speaking together, they were speaking in each uh, or Quechuaquel. I can't tell the difference because they're so similar sometimes trying to listen to them. But the important thing is, like any country, as long as you're not in like Italy or France, they appreciate the fact that you're simply attempting to speak <laughs> their language. And the beauty of the thing is in Guatemala, especially around Antigua, Guatemala City, it is the clearest form of Central American Spanish. There's no, there's no mm-hmm. slang. There's, there's really no, you know, for lack of a better expression, like in the South, there's no twang to it. They speak very clear, very methodical, very slow Spanish. Yes. So it's pretty easy yes. to quickly figure out what it is that they're saying 
and if nothing else, they'll help you because that's what people there are like. Yeah, they're not put off. They think it's they think it's you know fun. You're trying. They're going to help you. Okay. Antigua, but if you hit Antigua for sure, uh, God, you're, there's more English speaking there than anywhere because there's a bunch of English Spanish uh, schools there. It's a haven for actually Shayla's become like that from what Jose Quite was telling us. Yeah, that there are a lot of English-Spanish-speaking uh, immersion schools that you, where you go and, you know, spend a few weeks, month or two, whatever, mm-hmm. you will live in and uh, learn the language, which I would love to do. My Spanish has uh, deteriorated since we traveled last, but it got a little bit of a brushing up, but I need some work. Yeah, well, as we've said, both Antigua and Shela, there are a number of Spanish schools, and there's quite a lot of expatriates or even college students, whatever, mm-hmm. that go there. And if you want to do like a complete immersion where you live with a Maya family, you get three meals a day, and you probably spend four to six hours a day with a private tutor, you, you might be out about 15, 20 bucks a day. <laughs> I mean, wow. Come yeah. on. You know? Yeah. I know. It, 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 it's, it's the way our economy works incredible. compared to the way their economy works is so contrary. Uh, yeah. it, uh, it, it, the. the Total uh, cultural immersion is supposedly the best way to learn the, the language, and you know what you're presenting to the listeners uh, to, uh, doesn't make it sound like it's a, a, a intimidating experience to go there. Just, uh, just sounds like it'd be a fascinating experience. I was just going to say just being there. I, 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 can't, I could not recommend Antigua more to anyone. If you've never been down there, I'd start there. Just okay. walk Antigua. The whole city is a UNESCO heritage site. Cobblestone streets, uh, English speakers everywhere. Uh, it's it's an easy place to get started, and Shayla would would be number two. I had never been there before this trip, and I fell in love with that city. It's the second biggest city in Guatemala. There's a, a million and a half people there, and you'd never know it. It's incredible. Wow, uh, I didn't realize uh, the city was that large. So, okay, well, so that's number two, and number one is Guatemala City with three point five. So, wow, there's just not a lot of people. <laughs> There's there's a lot of beautiful country. It's dramatic. It's gorgeous. Uh, the food's incredible. The people are incredible. The art's incredible. I, I don't know why the U.S. State Department has them on a dangerous list because I, I swear, I mean, we, we we didn't hop around Guatemala City. We weren't in Zone 8 very long. You know, you, there, there's just areas you avoid. You know, get out into the, 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 the nice areas and just hang out with the people. Yeah. Well, Dave, I think the, I think probably the reason that the State Department still wants to identify Guatemala as dangerous goes back to the Reagan era. Montrios, sure. remember him, the dictator oh, yeah. at the time who was buddies with Reagan. Um, uh-huh. I, I think it's kind of the State Department of this country kind of hiding their face, that whole you know Japanese don't lose face thing. Well, if we mm-hmm. let people go down there and they suddenly realize – how kind these people were when we spent all those years trying to convince them that they were leftist communist gorillas, which is absolute nonsense. Yeah. They were simply indigenous people trying to defend the yep. rights to their own land, take care of their own yep. families, and the Reagan era dumped millions of dollars into Rios's program of disappearance. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, those. All I can say is it's safe. Just, just go. And if anybody has any questions before, if you want to go and you have any questions, uh, go to our website, get our emails, and shoot us a line. We'll be happy to help you. Yeah. Tell you where to stay, okay. who to, to get us a driver, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, we had a nice uh, summary of the Guatemalan. Uh, culture you know we have some other places to uh do a virtual visit in the last you know about 20 minutes or so of the show but if people go to you know road to and watch some of your other videos and read uh some of your blogs you know you also did an extensive uh, trip to England and Ireland. You got a uh, personal tour of uh, Stonehenge and Avebury with Maria Wheatley and Hugh Newman. Uh, okay, yeah, they're uh, f- friends of ours, uh, regular guests on the show. Um, yeah. Ha- how was that experience? And you went over to uh, New C. Newgrange with uh, James Swagger. What? It was awesome. It was a great trip. But um, we were, you know, self self acknowledged that you know we we were we were trying to to bite off a lot at the time, and we've gathered. We still we're sitting on thirty five to thirty six hours of interview footage alone that we have not edited not only from that trip, but from our trip across the U.S., and we've got a lot of work to do. We've had some personal challenges that have waylaid us both in the last few years and kind of taken us off uh, off track, but I think we're back on now. And We had a discussion about kind of reformatting Road to Ruins, doing it a little differently, uh, and, and starting to dive into that footage and get it out there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still relevant. It's just a little dated. Um, I'll look a little younger, which is probably good, but, um, <laughs> no, it, it was a great trip. We, we learned a lot on that trip, a ton on that trip. My God, it was like sight, 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 sight. It was really rampant. And I think we, you know, we just need to, we need to dive back into that footage and pull something out and we will, and we haven't decided exactly how we're going to go about funding it, but on our recent trip, uh, a development arose that, you know, may, may help us get to that uh, direction. We've considered crowdfunding. Um, we're, we're looking at options right now and just kind of trying to figure out how to go forward. But I want to let everyone know that we will have new material up on that website soon. I'm working on a blog or two and we've got a ton of stuff from our last trip we want to put up and post. Uh, so we're going to start getting it out. Okay. But yeah. But, Mark, as far as that trip goes, I think Dave, he kind of nailed it. It's like we've never really discussed it at length between us, but we bit off way too much. We intended to see everything, shoot everything, interview everyone in far too short of a period of time. And we did pull it off, but we both came back so burned out only to encounter (laughs) other life challenges that it's just like we just haven't touched it yet. We haven't done it. Yeah, I had to. You know, between uh, both of our health challenges and then me trying to build a place to live, finally got that uh, wrapped up, and uh, that's nice. But 
you know, it, it, everything else has had to sit on the back burner. And this trip just, to me anyway, just lit a fire under my butt and said, God, this, you know, this is what you need to be doing. You need to get back to it and let's get rolling. So I, I don't want to speak for you, Rob, but I, I think we're on the same page. Well, you'd like to think so, but you know. Yeah. Yes, I would. <laughs> uh, no, I mean that. There's, again, without without beleaguering the point, there is something very rejuvenating about that part of the world. It's like you know, granted, I oh, grew up yeah. with a massive fascination with Maya ruins, and I got to see five or six of them this last time. And Mark, there was even well, one, maybe two. And there was at least one instance where we hit a ruin, and the it was it's called Ximche, and the Quechua people were there. And they were performing a ceremony, an ancient ceremony, to bless. And this is my impression. I don't know exactly what they were doing. But I think what was happening is they were blessing a young couple who would probably uh-huh. would be married the week after we encountered the ceremony. They didn't care. So cool. I mean, they, they, they weren't uptight about us being physically present and observing for a bit and, you know, walking away gracefully. That's, um, that's just not something that you really encounter, you know, here in the States anymore. It's like it's a, it's a part of history, and it's people that still relate to each other, and that that, that makes you feel good when you walk away. It's good for your heart. Sure does. And uh, I got to use one of the words Rob taught me years ago in Kiche Maya. Marioche. Thank you. Yep. Okay. And, and I'll just uh, write that down. Uh, um, it, anyhow, um, on the, this uh, trip to uh England you did an experiment uh w- w- with a magnetometer that when R- Ross Hamilton was a guest with uh Barbara and uh, Jeff Wilson spoke about it um I think uh, this spring for the seed blessing ceremony I I I think both of them spoke about the um book uh <clears throat> seed of knowledge stone of plenty uh so so what was this exper- a- a- experiment that you did on the west kennet longborough we took uh electromagnetic readings at the entrance and we got up there at dawn when supposedly according to burke and hallberg who wrote seed of knowledge stone of plenty uh, that's the time that those forces are most active and uh you'll see more flux and I'll be damned if we didn't see that firsthand. I'm walking around with the thing. It jumps up 50. It jumps down 50. It jumps up 50. It jumps down. Uh, you know, and like I was saying, it was topping out around, I want to say 410, 410 uh, It's It's just, it, it was fascinating to me to actually, you know, you can read about that stuff. But actually getting the same instrument they used and taking it out to an ancient site and actually measuring it. That was pretty cool, and uh, I'm pretty addicted to that thing now, and I know what to look for in topography, and that's one of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was looking at the land around me. Mm -hmm. I saw the hill over there with water that would run down both sides. Uh, You know, you've got an alluvial plain down below. You've got a a ridge that is primarily stone, let alone, you know, uh, magnetic stone. You know, you've got quartz, a lot of quartz up here, a lot of iron. A uh, lot of conductive material in in the stone that comprises the ridge, and it's just 
it's it's neat putting science to you know the myth to the story you know and and science backs it up science backed it up out here science backed it up at west kennett uh they were onto something there and i think i, I think that i i've mentioned this several times but for my money that was one of the best books i have ever read uh i mean it's just it's perfect it's like, hey, we want to figure out why are these people taking these seeds to these locations and why after they take them out there, do their plants grow stronger, faster, and more resistant to oxidative stress? Well, let's let's go do it. Let's take some seed out there and try it. And they did, and they, they measured sites all over the world and found the same thing, that the ancient peoples were able to build these stone structures and channel the Earth's natural electromagnetic energy and create negative ionization you know, which is good for all living things. So uh, West Kennett specifically, when you talk about the living resurrection, you know, where you, you walk into a chamber like that, you've got complete sensory deprivation. It could be 100 degrees outside in pure sun, and you're in there and it's pure dark, and it's mm-hmm. cool. You're, you're shut off. You know, you stay in there for a while, and then you come out, oh, my God, my knee feels better. Wow, mm-hmm. my, my head feels better. I, I, I feel wonderful. I, I'm blessed. And when when Maria uh, has been a guest with us, she's also spoken about, you know, these healing uh, properties and this energy and, uh, you know, she and several other researchers uh, are taking the view that – yeah, these sacred circles were uh, being used as a healing center, you know, just a, a, sure. uh, a hospital. Well, you know, what, okay, I just told you about those rings that I found on this ridge behind me, less than a yeah, mile at, away, about a mile at, away. At the start of the show, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, uh, before I went up there on that hike, I, I, was, I, I have rheumatoid arthritis. My left knee was in pain. My left shoulder was in pain. And I thought, God, should I really go? And I think, now you got to go up there. you got to go do it. So I did it. I went up there. I sat in a circle. I, I did ceremony. I opened the directions. I was thankful. I stayed there for eh, maybe 30 minutes. And uh, I came back, and I went over to my neighbor's place, who, who lives a half mile away from me. That's as close as a neighbor should live, by the way. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, so I go over to his place. He's got a fire going, and I sit down, and I stretch my, my legs out. And I, I, I stop for a second. I go, wait a minute. We're, my pain was gone. I'm moving my elbow. I'm moving my left knee. Now, usually, anybody who has rheumatoid arthritis, I know it's different for everybody, but usually the pains that will go into a joint will at least last for two or three days. And this, this was gone. And I, I'm not attributing it to the circles. I don't know why it was gone. But isn't that kind of odd? Hey, Dave, if you would, real quick, could you explain to everybody what happens in places of negative ionization and also within the body of that, briefly touch on those pukas, those Orion-shaped pukas that we saw on the stele that were on the ground in Takalikabashi, Myoland. The Orion-shaped pukas? Yeah, we kept encountering these pukas. Yeah, that's right. Pukas, little holes. You know, you forgot. We were puzzling oh, over the what hole. they represented, and we were wondering. Yeah, they were little perfectly drilled holes. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
uh, well, some not so perfectly. I remember at uh, Takalika Bach, the, remember the back of that big, uh, well, the back of the big stone. Boy, that narrows it down. Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> but the big stalemate, yeah, the, the thing is, this, it's essentially the same thing that you're referring to that was occurring in Europe years ago. That was probably, but granted, we didn't have the magnetometer with, magnetometer with us, but it's right. probably the same sort of endeavor. It's like this is a sacred thing that's oh, been sure. constructed. To, to make a conduit from here to the heavens, and so put stones, put them, you know, umbilical cords, whatever in here, blessings. Yep, yep. Well, and before I do, I, I got to divert for a second, Mark. Before I forget, I know uh, we're coming up late to the end here, but uh, yeah, about you mentioned days. Ross. You mentioned Ross Hamilton, and one of yep. the things we found at Takalika Bach, the the one thing that amazes me more than anything, there was a uh, stele. And it aligns perfectly with Draco on December 21st. And below that stele, there's a round stone with two footprints in it that aligns in the same alignment. So hmm. I know Ross has done a lot of work on Serpent Mound and Draco. Right. And I, I'm looking at this thinking, okay, if you're these people, what are you trying to say by doing that? Is this signifying where we came from or where we're going back or where we're going to. I don't know. Pretty interesting. Well, but uh, Rob's been there before. I never had, but he said on his first visit, that was not availed. Well, we actually asked the guide what his impression was because before, I think the sign may have identified that they were indeed footprints, but I asked, well, those look like footprints. What are they signifying? And he indicated the path that you walk how you walk back to the place you came from, which according to the signage was not the not Orion, Draco. not the Milky Way, but Draco. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that was Olmec. Full on Olmec. Yeah. Interesting. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Could that be the beginning? If if that was the beginning of the Maya meeting the Olmec, is that the beginning of the serpent worship? Is that the beginning of Kugel Khan? I don't know. Yeah, because Draco Drake, is a serpent constellation. That's right. Yeah, and so we get when, that one a bit. Yeah, and when, when uh, Andrew Collins was, I guess, with this, uh, you know, he, he he was saying the Denisovans were um, worshiping the uh constellation of cygnus so it, it, that's interesting how you know it, we've looked at some of the similarities from around the world but you know we're also covering uh uh maybe some regional variations over you know rather lengthy periods of time but uh it it is it, you know the points you bring up are similar about going uh, you know tracing your way back to a place, but it, it it's two different places uh, between two different cultures. So it, it's it, just, just something to think about. Well, I think well, Clifford alluded like the whole to that too. To it it is, you know, I, I I I'm sorry, I just I, I seem to remember Clifford alluding to something like that, saying you know that. Uh, each or, or maybe it was Malava uh, mentioning that 
you know, different indigenous peoples are from different stars, different star systems. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, why not? That 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 would uh, uh, give us the answer right there. Well, it's kind of yeah. like the same. I was going to offer to Dave. It's kind of the Quetzalcoatl Kufukan thing. It's the same. I mean, it's the same constellation in the stars. It's the same manifestation on the Earth of a god perceived with different attributes, but it's different peoples that call the same thing mm-hmm. different things. But they're still right. geographically pretty close to each other. Right. Well, it, 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 and in another symbol you, you have on your website that uh, seems to have the universal commonality is the spiral, and that was on you know the curbstone in front of New Grange, and then. At, at at the Hopi sites, and I don't want to it talk about every, it. Occurs everywhere, Mark. I mean, that, yeah. that is the single yeah, most everywhere. universal symbol encountered with any peoples. I mean, the Taino left it, um, the Hopi left it, the Mayans used it, the Egyptians used it. Everybody employs that symbol. How that possibly occurred historically, that's going to remain a puzzle until somebody can sort that out. But obviously, whatever it represents. It's valid. It's important. Yep. Okay. Hey, uh, uh, we're down to like uh, five, six minutes or so. Uh, do Do you want to uh, plug anything, and Barbara could uh, step in and wrap things up so so we don't go over. All you, Dave. Well, she <laughs> thanks. <laughs> no, Fair enough. Uh, as far as as far as plugging anything goes, I mean we're we're pretty low on self promotion, and uh, that's uh, to our detriment. At the same time, you know, I, I we, we're going to get back to work. We already have gotten back to work, and um, this coming year we're going to be putting a lot more. You know, th- there's going to be some new stuff up on the site. We're going to work through it, so bear with us, hang with us if you can. Uh, but more than anything, I'd, my plug would be uh, get outside, go go look out your back door and see what you can find, and don't just take what you're listening to uh, and, and watching on TV verbatim and, and think that's valid and that that's truth because uh, it certainly is not. Oh, that's, that's quite my the plug. Good for you. Who do you represent? Yeah, well, and visit <laughs> Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a member of the Guatemala oh, we got, tourism board we got the, right now. Is it ten bucks or twelve bucks for saying that? I'll split it with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I get a free Moza next time I go back, <laughs> and I'll and I'll take it, Mister. Uh, oh no, great kidding. beer by the way, Moza, yum. But the gold, not so much the box. The box not bad, but the gold, oof, got a winner there. People have people have no idea what you're referring to, so I'll try and clarify. There are two types Thank of you. mosa beer in that country. The box is served in restaurants. The gold is purchased in stores. You don't want the box in restaurants. You want the gold in stores. Good luck trying to find it. It's one of the best beers on the planet. It is. It's dark, but it doesn't taste dark. It's amazing. Oops. I only drank about four of them last time we were there. Yeah, that, that was yeah, that, that was a light trip. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
Well, I, 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 uh, you know, I, I know Mark probably has something to say, but I want to congratulate both you and myself. We just did two hours, and we were really polite. That's true. We were, we were pretty, nice. That's true. We, we were. Didn't like both, and it, you know, that, that thing we did. I intended like, to get it. I, I intended to get a little surly. But, uh, well, we <laughs> don't intend to get surly. It's just kind of our personalities. It's like, pay attention. What are you folks missing? <laughs> Everything you need to know is out there. Turn that television off and go educate yourself. But we never did that until now. And now that I'm started, let me tell you something. All right, okay. I'll stop. Okay. There we go. And while you're doing that, I'm going to put my pants back on. Oh, uh, <laughs> there, there we go. Barbara, Bar, I, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, you're our second naked uh, uh, Okay, wait, 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 wait Before you go any further uh, I'm going to say <laughs> goodnight um, We want to thank you guys So very much for being with us Tonight, you have been Enlightening, entertaining Informative and Everything that a good guest should be We are thrilled that you were Here with us and we really hope that we Can convince you to come Back again for Almost two hours of amazing material bordering on almost getting surly. So we'll keep you, be, you know, from the surliness. We will thank you again for an amazing show, and we thank everybody for listening and joining us. Please, if you enjoy this show, we're going to have it up on um, YouTube in the morning. And please um, subscribe and look for further adventures of these two amazing wonderful, entertaining men. Good night, everybody.